how do we collectively lean into empathy? How do we collectively make it okay to be empathic with others? When so many of us already have this established algorithm of blame when we relate to others, we just can't fathom how to be in this empathic, vulnerable, tender, open-hearted place, which Renee Brown talks about all day long. And yet what we witness in social media, what we witness on the media forums and platforms, what we witness at work is this inability to lean into empathy. And I'm just wondering, how do we start to, to use a phrase of Tyler Muse from Lingo Live, how do we operationalize leaning into empathy? Welcome to the Best Self-Management Podcast. I'm David Hassel. And I'm Shane Metcalf. Me and David have been working together along with our co-founder Nazar and all the amazing other people that are a part of 15.5 for the last seven years. And we are not the same people that we were seven years ago. One of the things we're a big stand for is like, how do we actually embrace the whole person and understand that can we support someone in thriving in their whole life? And if we do, then they're probably going to contribute more at work. Your mission is to attract the best talent, retain your high performers, and maximize everyone's potential. Welcome to the Best Health Management Podcast. My name is Shane Metcalf. And I'm David Hassel. We're really thrilled to have Raj Kumari join us today. Welcome to the show, Raj. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me back again. Yes, super good to have you back on the show. And you posted on LinkedIn something that I thought was really brilliant, which is what sparked me to reach out and say, hey, can you please come back and talk about this topic? You posted, you said, right now, more than ever, we need to understand exclusion, truly understand exclusion, how it happens and what it does to us from a trauma lens and the toxicity it creates for everyone around us. We need the opportunity to discuss the pain, the hurt, the shock, the grief, the denial, the anger, and the incredible shame that compounds itself into exclusion and becomes the invisible toxicity in our communities and the profound trauma in our relationships. In the conversation around, hey, how do we support the Black community? How do we support Black Lives Matter? How do we actually start to change and evolve as companies? I think it would be really easy to make changes without actually addressing some of the root causes of how we got into the current dynamics in the first place. And that post really speaks to me about more of the root cause of where so much of the division and the hurt in our human family is coming from right now. I would love to hear more, Shane and David, about what that root cause is for you. What is that root cause? What... What's driving you know, your own passion around wanting to have these conversations? Yeah, for me, if I think of my own life story, if I think of the experiences that I've had growing up in northern New Mexico, of having a, a lot of attention on how do we move forward as a collective species? Mm-hmm. I think that it is impossible to not kind of move into a new era of humanity without recognizing that the current moment is like a sedimentary cake layered upon thousands and thousands of years of really dark, painful human experience. That we have been treating each other with unbelievable atrocity for generation after generation after generation. That we... All of the current circumstances didn't just 
arise out of left field. And so I think that for me, it's about healing our DNA, healing the deep fragmentation of our human relationships. And that's expressed itself in a lot of different ways. And I could definitely say more, but I really think that what we're seeing right now is a rising to the surface of collective trauma. Without a doubt. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I just, I want to kind of tug on the thread of the word healing that you use. You know, I think it is so imperative and essential. And I know you personally, Shane, have done a phenomenal amount of work around your own personal healing journey. Um, and David, I would love to hear more about that for you. Sure. Every segment of this journey of healing, whatever form that is, requires us to turn toward looking at that which we excluded previously. Hmm. David, you talked about that in our kind of pre-conversation chat, which yeah. I would love to reinvite back into this conversation. So much of rewiring the brain from an epigenetic stance that we've talked about so often, Shane, is in order to create inclusion, in order to create a full, authentic, whole essence of a being, personally, professionally, at the workplace, you know, in the neighborhood, we have to really acknowledge and honor that which has been excluded. Mm and re-invite that back into the sphere of inclusion that we're creating for everyone, including ourselves. What's so interesting is that what you just said could be applied to both the individual as a solo human. I need to bring back the parts that have been excluded of me back to the table and reintegrate mm -hmm. them. And then, of course, on the macrocosmic, that's mm -hmm. how we heal a society. A country. Yeah. David, I'd love to hear your thoughts and invite your voice into the conversation. Of course. Yeah. Now, I'm curious, um, and, and I can certainly share a little bit, you know, to what Shane had said. You know, I grew up, I feel like it's, it had an interesting experience of being welcomed many places I went. In high school, I was the kid who, uh, you know, I felt like a bit of a chameleon. I could be with different groups of people. But I never quite felt like I truly belonged in any one of the groups. So I had this really interesting experience of feeling welcomed yet not belonging. And that's just part of my own uh, kind of history. And as I was sharing with you before this, uh, you know, before we started actually recording here, the last few weeks with all of the, the protests and the riots and the, the unrest we've experienced and the outrage, the result of this outrage of coming from this sense of systemic injustice, I think had a yeah. lot of people, including myself, being faced with having to look at some things that we haven't really looked at before. And I've I feel like I have gone through mm. a massive fundamental shift personally. You know, I even said to you that I feel like now the, you know, this level of disparity and injustice that we have in our society I actually see that we can't fulfill our mission and vision as a company of, of helping people become their best selves, of unlocking the potential of every member of the global workforce while that exists. So all of a sudden now I feel like our mission has, has grown and expanded to include that. And me personally, I've, I've experienced 
a whole other level of empathy and understanding for what it's like to not be accepted based on who you are innately as a human being. And that is when I really feel into that. While I haven't had that experience myself, it brings up an an enormous amount of emotion for me and, and pain and anger and just commitment to say like, previously I felt like, okay, this stuff's important. I think I get it intellectually. But now I feel like I get it viscerally, which is mm-hmm. different. And to that end, um, I don't know. I always looked at myself as a good person. I'm not racist. And yeah, I guess those things happen, but never fully experiencing it myself. It wasn't my problem. Like it didn't feel like my, my thing to solve. And now I feel like, whoa, this is my problem. This is my thing to solve. I, I'm committed to a society that creates opportunity for everyone to reach their potential for everyone to feel accepted, for everyone to feel belonging. And how do we do that? How do we create that environment first and foremost inside of 15.5 of the people that we care for? And then how do we start to be the change so that that can spill outside the walls of 15.5 and do our part to, to create a different future? You know, what comes up for me, David, when you, when you share that is the phrase that you used in the beginning of our conversation pre-recording and you talked about leaning into empathy. Mm-hmm. And I loved that. And that, that really brought up a lot of emotion when you were sharing about that and your experience. And just now you shared how the shift occurred viscerally for you. It was almost like a somatic embodied experience. And I'm yeah. noticing that you're getting emotional again. Is that right? Yeah. And I'm just, you know, the question becomes for me, how do we collectively lean into empathy? How do we collectively make it okay to be empathic with others? When so many of us already have this established algorithm of blame when we relate to others, we just can't fathom how to be in this empathic, vulnerable, tender, open-hearted place, which Renee Brown talks about all day long, And yet what we witness in social media, what we witness on the media forums and platforms, what we witness at work is this inability to lean into empathy. Yes. And I'm just wondering, how do we start to to use a a phrase of of Tyler Muse from from Lingo Live? How do we operationalize this? Mm. How do we operationalize leaning into empathy? I honestly, I think that's the only question to be asking because <laughs> I think that's the answer. You know, it, I was having a conversation with a VC friend of mine yesterday and they were saying, well, I, I'm confused because, you know, my job is to return the maximum profit to my shareholders, to, you know, to my investors, to my LPs, all that my only job is to return a, a big investment. And so this isn't my job, right? And I think it's the capitalist structure that we've built our businesses on top of disincentivizes that kind of empathy. And so, you know, looking at this, the the problem of racism, the problem of racism inside of our companies, which I think is maybe inclusive of exclusion. You know, I'd love to actually understand your distinctions of exclusion and racism and yeah. how those overlap. Um, but I think that the paradigm of business fundamentally needs to shift. Like shifting the premise, the foundational beliefs of business, of corporate culture is necessary 
so that it's not just a, a band-aid solution that we get to, you know, feel good about and then move on. Absolutely. I think, you know, it's so interesting. I've just been asked to give a presentation on racism at a company that has 27,000 employees. And they wanted me to talk about that. And I said, well, you know, for me, what we're talking about here is uh, severe and extreme exclusion. Racism is, in fact, severe, repetitive, horrific exclusion. That's what it is. It is basically saying there's a power dynamic here. And in this power dynamic, there is one person who is better than another person based on the color of their skin. That is completely false. That is a completely false statement. And it's occurring because we have not yet fully come to this place where we can understand how being empathic with others really creates a collective wholeness, yeah. if you will, a collective strength, if you will. When I feel empowered and empathic from you, as you know, you're my boss and I'm working for you, I feel invincible. Mm. You know, the motivation and reward centers in my brain light up, and I just I want to do anything and everything. This was an exact experience that happened to me at Facebook. My boss was amazing at really kind of understanding and learning who I am and providing that level of emotional intelligence where I felt seen and held and supported and valued that I would work 10 extra hours over the weekend just to get my job done because it mattered that much that he looked successful. Wow. Period. Right. And while I was at another job, another boss, the complete opposite happened where I would give almost nothing. I mean, on Fridays, I would work from home, air quotes, and watch Netflix. You know, I don't do that anymore, by the way. And <laughs> Me either, for the record, David. Never done, <laughs> never done that. Now. <laughs> um, and I think that we need to understand the level at which we exclude every single day is wreaking havoc on the nervous systems of the people who work for us. Can you talk a little bit about how your, your, your research into epigenetics plays into this? Because one of the things that keeps coming to mind for me is that, yeah. you know, people say, Oh, well, I'm not racist. And yet there is so much deep programming in our human DNA of generation after generation of excluding others. And something that always sticks with me is that you don't say that just the trauma of the past seven generations can be detected in our DNA, but the mindset mm. also carries down into us. And that we're, we're these echoes of our ancestors' mindsets and experiences. As I continue to do more research, different numbers are now coming out around generation. So originally when I started in the research from 2016 from Rachel Yehuda, talked about seven generations, which is approximately 210 years. Joy DeGru, Dr. Joy DeGru, who's the author of uh, Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome, says that it's uh, over 300 years. And now Resma Menachem, who has an amazing podcast on, on being with uh, Krista Trippett, is it? Trippett, I think. I'm sorry, I don't remember. Um, 
says 490 years. <laughs> wow. wow. So, wow. you know, that brings us back to the Middle Ages. <laughs> yeah. Not a single one of us is off the hook. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, just kind of leaving that statement right there on the floor kind of blows everyone's mind. doesn't matter if it's 200 or almost 500. You're walking around with this in your DNA. Moshe right. Science is an epigeneticist. There's a ton of YouTube videos of him. He's such an amazing... Uh, I love watching his videos. You know, he talks about how social hierarchy is passed down and encoded in our DNA. Wow. So just think about that. Resma Menachem talks about white body supremacy and that the entire concept is any deviation that is not a white body is in fact, quote unquote, wrong, which means now we have this extreme level of exclusion from a very systemic place on this planet. Resma talks about how black babies are born with higher levels of cortisol right off the bat based on this epigenetic mindset. David, you talked about belonging before, and um, Stephen Porges is a a really interesting guy. He he wrote a book called Polyvagal Theories, a uh, 40-year body of research around the nervous system. The technical term for belonging is, in fact, neuroception. And it's our system that is designed to scan for safety, for uh, threat, and for danger in life-threatening situations. Imagine coming into the world, and I know, Shane, you can really relate to this, given that you are a brand new father, with your child already starting with incredibly high levels of cortisol, and that their neuroception is already programmed to be on high alert, and they're three days old. We have to rewire the ways in which we understand empathy and exclusion globally. Yeah. I have a question. So, you know, if, if, if empathy is the answer, if we all had that level of empathy and the ability to really connect and lean in and, you know, I, I, I think the world would, would be a very different place. And I think, you know, the dialogue so many of us are exposed to, whether you watch TV or you follow politics, my God, it's all, it's all defense and attack and, and anger. And it's, you know, it's very like, and we talk a lot internally in 15.5, uh, around one of the principles or concepts that the conscious leadership group uh, puts out there and, you know, about being above the line or below the line. Uh, when you're yeah. below the line, you're coming from fear and security and protection. Above the line, you're coming from curiosity and trust. And, you know, it feels like much of the world is living in this below the line state. And, and I think that keeps you away from empathy, right? I'm curious if you have more about to talk about the, the nature of exclusion, because it feels like it's something that is an innate characteristic. I don't know if it's social, conceptual, like we're indoctrinated, if it's biological, if it's all of that. Is it evolutionary? Is there, is there a purpose? Is it coming from this place of fear, this othering? Like, uh, you know, how do we better understand that dynamic? if we kind of look at that as the enemy? 
It's such a fantastic question, David, and and one that is incredibly complex. And mm. I'm so glad that this podcast is about four hours long today. So <laughs> yeah, we can really let's go into the nuanced science yes. of it. So, so many things I can say about this. Firstly, mm. we have two hemispheres. The the left hemisphere really kind of excels in measurement and comparison, and it really uh, does a fantastic job in evaluating and seeing what's missing. The mm. right hemisphere is all about relationality. The right hemisphere allows us to be in relationship to ourselves, to others, to the world around us. The right hemisphere allows us to understand the interconnectedness, see the big picture. The right hemisphere brings us empathy uh, from a place of concern. We don't actually get to access our concern empathy if we are not hanging out in our right hemisphere. We have built companies that really have focused and emphasized left hemisphere, that we are seeing the ways in which we show up and are rewarded based on how we function, how we accomplish, what we can cross off of our uh, to-do list. And when we hang out in our left hemisphere, we lose sight of that relationality. We lose Mm. sight of that empathy. And in order for the left hemisphere actually to process and integrate brand new information, whether it's in a meeting, whether it's walking down the street, it does that through blame, right? Right. And so if the algorithm for relationship in the left hemisphere is in fact blame and blame secretes dopamine, which feels so deliciously yummy, yes, I become very familiar with blaming And I start to notice that when I blame, I feel good. It becomes a cycle, right? Yeah. And oxytocin, that level of empathy, when we show someone empathy, it actually secretes oxytocin. Mm. And so if I can balance my ability to move from the left into the right, be in this relational element, and then go back to the left to actually get stuff done, because at the end of the day, I am building a company. We are delivering on products and services, and we have a need to actually, as you said earlier, Shane, deliver for our investors, right? We need an incredible balance of both. Yes. The exclusion piece happens when we don't have the capacities, the resources, and the skill set to go to our right hemisphere. If we have had incredibly difficult childhoods, if we come with transgenerational trauma that is completely unresolved, which many of us do, that unresolved trauma gets coded in the right hemisphere and throughout the body. And the right hemisphere starts to become a place that's not very nice. It becomes scary. Even though that's where our feelings are, that's where we understand our body sensations. If we don't want to hang out there because we have so much unresolved trauma that's generating all of this anxiety and depression and PTSD, we're just going to hang out in our left because golly gee willikers, it feels so much better. Yes. That makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Yeah. And so what we need to provide to the world is this way of understanding and this opportunity to rewire the right 
so that we all come fully forward in all aspects of ourselves with the left and the right hemisphere. So I know that you have some really interesting techniques to help in that shifting from dominant left brain activity to more balance, more integration, more communication between the two hemispheres. Can you share a couple of those techniques? And, and also of the, you know, the operationalizing of this, because I think that where I go is like, yeah, right. Like, how do we bake these things into the, the fabric of a culture so that it just happens by default of you participating in the culture? Right. So first and foremost, every single person on the planet is bilingual, meaning that their left hemisphere speaks completely differently than their right hemisphere. Uh, The left hemisphere is about problem solving. It's about giving advice. And we call that uh, transactional language. The right hemisphere is all about relationships, and, and we call that relational language. There's a lot of research that shows that when people speak different languages or say words they don't know that they've never said before in different languages, different parts of their brain actually light up. We need to actually start to speak significantly more relationally. That ability to speak relationally will rewire the right hemisphere and strengthen our ability to be uncomfortable in difficult conversations. Right now, why it's so difficult to have a difficult conversation is because it feels horrible. It feels uncomfortable. I don't want to do this. What do I do with this? (laughs) And I'll go to my left right away and I'll give you some data and everything will be fine. I mean, we're, we're reading our leadership team. We're reading the book, White Fragility. And that whole thesis there is this idea that why is it so hard for white people to talk about race? It's uncomfortable. We don't have the racial stamina. We don't have the the wherewithal to be with all of the things that come up that we're probably not even conscious of. So it's much easier to deny, deflect, blame, run away, not have the conversation. Well, and it makes me think of how much trauma we as white people actually carry. You know, we like to think, oh, you know, the black community has been so traumatized, but you know, let's connect the dots. If it's uncomfortable to be in the right hemisphere because of unprocessed trauma, then why are we as white people so comfortable with the left brain versus the right brain? And can we start to own our own karma, our own trauma, instead of, hey, let's go fix everyone else's? Shane, there are so many reasons why I adore you. That was one of them. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And in fact, uh, Resma Menachem talks exactly about that and, mm. and, and how that level of violence back in the Middle Ages uh, is, is a huge root of all of this, if you will. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and that the oppressor is also the oppressed. You know, that it's not like, oh, yeah, I haven't done damage to my soul when I have committed violence on another person. Absolutely. I mean, this. Yeah, I have so much to say about that. <laughs> it's intense because it's like, oh, well, we're just a business. What can we do yeah. when we're looking at a global rebirth? Yeah. Know, I, I really feel like that what is happening right now is the surfacing of our collective trauma. Yeah. And the only way for me that makes sense is that it is coming to the surface so that we can really deal with it and deal with it in a way that's never happened. You know, David, you you were saying, 
nothing like this has happened in our lifetimes. I don't think anything like this has happened in thousands of years. Mm. You know, I don't know about, you know, if there's been other prior civilizations that have gone through similar cycles as we are, but in our modern history, I don't think anything like this has ever happened. Yeah, we, we are arriving at a place where we are no longer accepting exclusion as a way to engage with each other. Yes, wow. Which was the default accepted way of engaging with each other. Like, you know, that's what blows my mind is that this, was, this wasn't just a, like accepted or maybe slightly shunned behavior. This was the encouraged norm. This was how you operated especially for in, in you know relatively recent history for white society. Absolutely. Absolutely. David, any final thoughts that you would like to add to this conversation? You know, I just wanted to hearken back to one thing. You know, you had said something about how for people to access that level of empathy, they need to be able to connect with the right and that they need to, you know, they don't have the resources or the skills to get there. And, you know, it, it reminded me of something like we talk a lot about with my son and his mom about when we're under-resourced. Like, when we don't have, when we're under-resourced, you know, people talk about being hangry. It's just a great example of, you know, you're hungry and you're not feeling good. And so you get below the line and you say some things that you don't mean. And I feel like collectively our society is under-resourced. And if we can provide those resources through healing, if we can provide those resources through skills, creating more safety for people to have more difficult conversations, I think we can start to move things in the right direction. Absolutely. And I'll just share that one of the studies that Moshe Seif did was, um, I think he shared about the study, is that he traumatized baby mice and um, was able to notice that in this trauma he turned on the NR3C1 gene. And he was kind of, you know, kind of trying to understand DNA ventilation and trauma and and, and epigenetics. And what was shocking to him was after the little mice had been traumatized, they ran off to the adult mice to get snuggled. And that by default created um, oxytocin. Right? Oh. That level of empathy, that level of support, that level of replenishment, that level of nourishment from touch. And what Moshe noticed was that that gene, the NR3C1, turned off after they got snuggled. So there's hope. Wow. There's hope here and in some pretty significant ways. If we can collectively agree to do our own work and to really show up and heal and to understand when we get triggered, understand what's underneath the hood of us individually. That is how we will collectively shift Mm. our planet. Raj Kumari, thank you so much for joining us. Definitely stay tuned for part three. How can people find your work, follow you on social. How do we get more? Um, well, my phone number is, just kidding. Um, <laughs> so LinkedIn, Raj Kumari Niyogi, of course, and I have a website, uh, rajkumariniyogi.com. Thank you. I know you got to run. Thank you, Raj Kumari. Great to be with you today. Awesome. Thank you so much, Shane. Thank you so much, David. This has been amazing as always. Such a pleasure. Thank you both so much. Likewise. Bye. 
thank you to our producer, Counterweight Creative, to our executive producer, David Misney, and guest coordinators, Sydney Lee and Suzanne Haight. One of the easiest things you can do to help us spread the message of being and becoming your best self at work is to write a review on Apple Podcasts or just share this episode's link on your favorite social media channel. If you have any questions or comments, please email me and Shane at podcast at 15.5.com. We'd love to hear from you. And finally, thank you. Thank you.